Sudden death in the young is a tragic occurrence. How often is it related to inherited heart diseases? You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, attorney and Dr. Bruce Bloom, President and Chief Science Officer of Partnership for Cures, a nonprofit that drives cures to patients through repurposing current therapies for new uses. And my guest is Dr. Elizabeth McNally, Professor of Medicine and Human Genetics and Director of both the Institute for Cardiovascular Research and the Cardiovascular Genetics Clinic at the University of Chicago Medical Center in Chicago, Illinois. Dr. McNally is a cardiologist and internationally renowned expert on the genetics of heart disease, and she joins us to talk about these diseases. Dr. McNally, welcome to ReachMD. Thank you. So what are inherited heart diseases? Well, there are many different forms of inherited heart diseases. The ones that I am very interested in and take care of many patients with these disorders include those that affect the myocardium of the heart in terms of inherited cardiomyopathies. But there are also inherited heart rhythm disorders as well as inherited vascular disorders. We see these often because they tend to run very directly in families where multiple generations in the family may be affected. And in many cases now, we've moved to the point where we actually have clinically certified genetic testing where we can identify the gene that is defective and provide information to family members to understand what their risk is of inheriting the same problem. So how many of these inherited diseases would you say there are and what are the most common ones? I think we are still at the tip of the iceberg in terms of understanding the number of different disorders. The most common ones, the ones that we see, are inherited forms of cardiomyopathy, which can lead to congestive heart failure. The most common is dilated cardiomyopathy. We see this commonly because these are our patients who ultimately end up going for heart transplant a lot of the time. The most common cause of dilated cardiomyopathy often is actually just ischemic heart disease, but about half the time it actually turns out to not be ischemic heart disease and a problem directly in the myocardium itself. There are at least 40 different genes that can lead to the dilated cardiomyopathy itself, and for some of those we actually have genetic testing now. There's another form of cardiomyopathy known as hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, and in this case the the myocardium is actually very thickened, leading to heart failure and to irregular heart rhythms. This is one of the ones that occurs where we'll often see members of families where there may have been an incidence of sudden death, and we're now dealing with the surviving members of the family and trying to reduce their risk. The other common ones that we see are inherited arrhythmias, what is most commonly known as the long QT syndrome, that also is a disorder associated with inherited risk for sudden death, as well as some inherited vascular abnormalities such as Marfan syndrome, which can affect the aorta. I also see patients that have neuromuscular disease, forms of muscular dystrophies, because very commonly these patients also develop cardiomyopathy as well. So what is the prevalence of these inherited heart diseases in the general population? It depends on your population. So depending where you are in the world, those answers can be very different. Generally, we work with numbers about 1 in 500 for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. In some parts, uh, one of the big debates has been in certain parts of Italy where it's been studied, particularly those disorders that cause sudden death in the younger population, the athletic population. Um, It's thought to be more a disorder that's known as arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy, which is a disorder that affects the right ventricle 
ventricle more than the left ventricle and also leads to an increased risk of sudden death. And so the genetics of those disorders are quite different, and it may reflect that the Italian population is just something of a different population with what we call founder effect mutations. In the United States, we tend to see hypertrophic cardiomyopathy more. In fact, that's a disease that runs in my family. My uncle, my sister, and one of my cousins are all suffering from something that used to be called IHSS. I don't know what the name of it is now. There are different names for it, and it has to do with, sometimes it was called hokum hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy, or different names that relate to the fact that sometimes the septum itself can be very, very thick. Now we tend to just refer to it as familial hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or hypertrophic cardiomyopathy because we know that different parts of the ventricle can equally be affected. So it can affect the septum where the septum becomes very thick, or it can affect the apex of the ventricle where that becomes very thick, or it can just be concentric left ventricular hypertrophy. And sometimes the same identical mutation can be associated with those different forms of the disease. How are these diseases usually transmitted from generation to generation? Is this an autosomal dominant or what's the uh, normal path of inheritance? The most common for the hypertrophic cardiomyopathies and for the dilated cardiomyopathies is autosomal dominant inheritance. And that shows up in most families as multiple generations where we see affected members of the family. So in, in multiple sequential generations, we'll see grandparents affected, children affected, and the children, the grandchildren affected as well. Very, very often, the inheritance is what we call with variable penetrance or variable expressivity, meaning that there are individuals who inherit the gene defect, but for whatever reason, never really show signs of the disease. They appear to be protected either through environmental or other genetic factors. And so in many cases, we know that when they inherit the gene defect in the family, their risk probably isn't fully 50% of getting it. It's probably a little bit less than that. So what are the reasons for this variable clinical expression? You mentioned either genetic reasons or environmental reasons. What are the most common ones or do we not know yet? Well, obviously that is an area of research right now, which is to try to understand the variability because if you can understand what is producing that variability, those are important angles on trying to develop new therapies for these disorders. If we can understand why the person who has the gene defect but lives until their 80s doing quite fine, obviously we want to get to the bottom of that because that's great potential therapy for other members of the family. In terms of environmental issues, work from other investigators, Leslie Linewand at the University of Colorado has shown some very nice data on the effects of sex. Males and females seem to show up with these diseases differently, and some of that appears potentially to be due to hormone influence as well as other genes that we don't know are involved in it. She's also done some work looking at diet and the effect of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, finding that a soy-based diet turns out to be not so great for developing this disease. In my group and in others, like the group of Cricket Seidman and John Seidman at Harvard, there has been a lot of interest in mapping what are potential modifiers. So what are other genes that we know that can change the course of disease and getting at gene-gene interactions in that way? And so that work is still ongoing. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Bloom, and I'm speaking with Dr. Elizabeth McNally, University of Chicago cardiologist an internationally known expert on the genetics of heart disease, and she joins us to talk about these diseases. So, Dr. McNally, when do these usually show up? Is it right at birth? Does it happen in adolescence? Does it not happen till 
of people are older. When does it show up? Well, it depends on the disorder. Hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is probably the best understood. Very often, kids are really quite normal when they're born and run around and do all the normal things. When they go through their growth spurts, particularly around the time of puberty, it turns out the heart responds to those growth signals as well. And so that's the time when we usually start watching those kids a little more closely and recommend that they have echocardiography a bit more frequently. There are some genetic forms of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy that actually don't show up until people are much older, into their 40s and 50s. And that tends to have a milder course. Those tend to be associated with what we call the myosin-binding protein C mutations as opposed to the myosin-heavy chain mutations. For the dilated cardiomyopathies, um, it can really present at any age, but more commonly tends to present in 20s, 30s, and 40s. And I'll have to say I, I may have a little bit of bias on that because I am an adult cardiologist, and so I tend to see people who are, who are adults. But the incidence of pediatric dilated cardiomyopathy is less than what we see in the adult population. So how are these different diseases alike, and how are they different? Dilated cardiomyopathy and hypertrophic cardiomyopathy are really very alike in that they can both be associated with signs and symptoms of heart failure, so fatigue and shortness of breath and fluid retention, and both are similar in that they present with an increased risk of arrhythmias that can affect both the atria and, importantly, the ventricles, the worst case being ventricular tachycardia or ventricular fibrillation, which can lead to sudden death. And those are the ones that we want to be most rigorous about identifying risk and reducing risk. And how are they really different? Are they different in the way you treat them? Yeah. For dilated cardiomyopathy, we actually have a pretty good selection of medications that we know are reasonably effective at inducing what we call remodeling. So I can take individuals that have enlarged dilated hearts with reduced function and put them on medications, namely ACE inhibitors and beta blockers, and a percentage of the time you can actually see improvement in function. In one population where it's been studied, if you start those medications very early, you can actually prevent or slow the progression of disease. We don't have as much information about that with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. We tend to use some of the same medications, but without quite the same data to back it up. There is also suggestion that medications such as calcium channel blockers may be effective in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Is there a surgical intervention that's ever done with these patients besides transplant? So for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, if there is an extreme buildup of the septal myocardium, there are surgical options that can be used for that. There are more invasive and less invasive ways of undergoing what's known as a myomectomy, which is reducing the size of that septum and reducing the amount of outflow gradient that occurs from that. And how often do these patients require heart transplants? A minority of time. Most of the time we can actually manage people pretty effectively with medications and then also aggressively treating their arrhythmia risk with placement of defibrillators if necessary. So talk to us a little bit about this testing. So if you know it runs in the family, do you test everybody in the family and how expensive are those tests and how invasive are they? So testing is really new. It's come into play in the last three to four to five years. And these are actually clinically certified genetic tests that are done by a clinically certified laboratory. There are a number of centers around the country that do offer this testing. My clinic is one that is expert in doing this. And how we do this is if you come in to be seen, you will be seen by both me as well as a certified genetic counselor. Who we like to test is we like to test somebody in the family that we know has the disease or we're suspicious that they have the disease because this allows us the greatest chance of actually finding the mutation that is in that individual. Once we have that, then we can offer that individualized test to other members of the family so that they can know what their risk is. 
there are costs associated with it. The costs for doing the first pass screening is usually much greater than the subsequent individual screening and family members because in the first case, they're usually testing many different genes. And so those tests can run in the several thousands of dollars. And we've been reasonably successful because many insurers do cover the cost of this testing, very similar to what's being done for BRCA testing in cancer patients, for example. Once we have an individual signature in a family, usually the cost associated with that individual testing is is much, much less, a couple of hundred dollars to maybe $500. And that really is a a great advantage for a family because rather than having to have echoes every year or every other year for many, many years, they can simply undergo this genetic test and know in a much better sense what their risk is and potentially not need to see the cardiologist every year and every other year for, for their lifetime. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Elizabeth McNally, Professor of Medicine and Human Genetics and Director of both the Institute for Cardiovascular Research and the Cardiovascular Genetics Clinic at the University of Chicago Medical Center in Chicago, Illinois, for joining us to talk about the genetics of inherited heart disease. I'm attorney and Dr. Bruce Bloom. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM 157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your questions and comments. Please visit us at ReachMD.com where you can find our new on-demand and podcast features that will allow you access to our entire program library. And thank you for listening.